What's up everyone? This is Dariusz Kalbaczyk, co-founder of NG Poland, JS Poland, Mastercourses.dev and WorkshopFest.dev. Welcome back to Angular Master Podcast. Today, together with Michael Rx Hladki, trainer and consultant, Angular, Nest.js, RxJS, TypeScript, GDE, MVP, Performance Engineer. We discuss everything related to our favorite framework. So let's start the show. Hi, Michael. How are you? Hello, hello. I'm pretty good. <laughs> Thanks for this buzzwordy introduction. Really cool, really cool. <laughs> Thanks. Okay, so can you introduce a little bit uh, yourself to our audience? Of course. Uh, my name is Michael Latke. And what I like to do is, I would say in recent times, uh, digging into performance stuff. We can teaser that a little bit at the end of, of this session. Um, but in general, what I do, uh, I'm a trainer, consultant, and developer that... Um, Yeah, is at the moment focusing on Angular application, TypeScript, performance, and reactive programming in general. And yeah, this is what I do my living of. I have a small company in Vienna, and I also do some online trainings and workshops as the one with NG Poland. That's perfect. That's perfect. Well said. So I have a few questions. Can we start? Let's start. Okay. Michael. I know global state already. What is a local state and what is different to global state? Nice question. Um, global Thank state. You. Yeah. <laughs> 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 oh, good to start like that. Um, so let's start with global state just to, to recap a little bit. Um, state and global state, state in general is some value. Any value is state, everything, even a, a background color could be state. And global state is one specific type of state that you want to maintain on your own, right? For example, uh, the background color of a div is maintained by the browser. If you re-render the page, the browser will not forget that there is red as the background color. And uh, trivial for us as, as developer, I would say, to maintain that. Um, And there is this global state type that you want to maintain when you want to like share specific data in any application. Um, in pretty much every front end framework, you have global state management libraries or even a, just approaches to manage global state. What would be a good example for a global state? So let's start first with the application itself. The application nowadays is a single page application, which means everything on the client is already there. Every single page that you would uh, navigate to is already there. I mean, let's, let's ignore lazy loading for a moment and say everything is uh, loaded at once, okay? So everything is there in the single page application and Uh, maybe different pages show the same type of information, just in a little bit of a different way. Let's think about the movie page. Uh, a movie page can show you different movies. Uh, this is a an array of movies. And then you could click on one specific movie, and then you would see details of that movie, and maybe other related movies that are similar to this movie. So the two screens... The first one, the big overview list, and the small list in the details page 
they both contain the same data. The first list contains all the movies, and the second list has a subset of that data. It filters out a little bit of the of all the movies and shows only the movies that are like related to this specific detail page. So you would not want to refetch that stuff over and over again because movies most probably don't change that often, right? Uh, so what you want to do is you want to share that information across multiple different pieces in your application. You have this one list, this this array, and you share this array, you, you manage it on one central place, and then you share that specific data with multiple different parts of your application. And this is, I guess, a very um, simple way of explaining what global state is. So again, a recap, global means I want to, on one place, maintain that state and then share it with multiple different other pages on your application. So what is local state? Local state and then local state management. Um, local state is basically any type of state that you, for example, maintain only for a specific component. For the movie card component, you maintain maybe uh, if there is a hover or if there is a selected state on this one specific card, you could select multiple movies and 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 give them a star or other interactions, and maybe the different states are only relevant for this specific component, not for any other component. And you also don't need to share that, right? This is then the state of this one component, and this is one explanation that we can pick to explain local state. So <clears throat> the difference here is, again, one, the global stuff is globally maintained. Local stuff is only for one specific component. And we can look at that, that two areas in like three different sections. You can say what's the lifetime and normally global state is has a very long lifetime, right? It, it survives uh, navigations. Uh, you can close and open the detail page and it is a, a very, very long lifetime. Compared this to the lifetime of local state, is uh, completely different because the local state only lives within this component. And if you navigate away, the component gets destroyed and also the state. Also, the, the sources that you uh, use and, and where you fetch your data from are different. Global state management mostly fetches data from either uh, any REST API or from the, from the browser plugins like Bluetooth, uh, online state or or any other stuff. This is really like a global layer where, where you get your data from. And local state uh, could focus on the specific user interface elements like a button, a select box, open, closed, uh, if I have a star on that card or not. And uh, it can uh, use some pieces of the global state, but mostly focuses uh, on local changes. And in very rare cases, you could then also save that local state back uh, and use it as global state. But in general, this is also one way how you can distinguish it. So the sources where data is coming from and also the events like user interactions or HTTP requests, these are some uh, ways how you can differentiate them. So the question is, why 
did you start to work on local state? And what is about uh, Zonless and uh, the X? Yeah, so um, local state is here already, right? Because if you have a value in a component in Angular, uh, you have local state. But what we don't have is local state management. Um, because our change detection system in Angular is not really aware of, of these states. It is just more or less aware of interactions, but not of changes. Um, let me compare that to React or Vue. They both maintain their own local state management. React with its uh, uh, earliest version of set state, or now they, they wrap it with some, with some use effects or use hooks. Um, and they basically had this, this mechanism of introducing a change to a component uh, all the time in. If we compare that to Angular, uh, Angular is relying on zone.js. So when we click a button to increment the counter, for example, uh, we, would, we would not set the state of the count variable and then we would re-render like React does. We basically... We change the value, but it doesn't matter. Uh, the, the reason why Angular is like re-rendering uh, this change is because my button click is patched. My button click or uh, the HTTP request or any other interaction with uh, low-level browser APIs uh, or asynchronous, mostly asynchronous browser APIs, Uh, is patched and, and when I interact with them, Angular basically triggers a re-rendering of the application top down, which is very inefficient. And it also takes away a lot of, I would say, knowledge of the developer uh, because we don't really know how we introduce a, a re-rendering, a change. It just happens all the time and we also cannot really control it. So it's very unfortunate that uh, Angular is so heavily tied to Zone.js. Um, and back then, when I started to um, dig into that topic, local state management, I did it because um, a year before I was, uh, I believe, also at uh, NG Poland uh, talking about uh, Angular Elements. And Angular Elements were my first uh, situation where I started to discover how we can write zoneless applications. Zoneless applications because specifically to Angular elements, uh, web components uh, wrapped in, in a thin Angular wrapper, um, you, you don't want to ship zone.js all the time, right? It, is, it would bundle up, uh, pile up the, the bundle size pretty quickly. And it's also really uncomf uh, uncomfortable to code because you have a lot of different problems and overlaps with other parts of Angular. Um, a messy thing. So I, I discovered or I started to discover how to basically go zone-less with uh, Angular elements. And one of the fundamental pieces I needed to do that is some way of managing the local state. And as I had some experiences all, all, already with uh, AngularJS, because I created a small state management uh, lib there, Uh, I knew already what I don't want to do. <laughs> I don't want to pull the changes. I want to do it in a reactive way. I want to push changes to all the uh, parts in my application that are interested in. So uh, the state management that I worked on and that I researched is uh, fully based on 
uh, reactive programming. It is not only fully tied to reactive programming, it also helps to basically mix those two paradigms, uh, reactive and imperative programming. So you can set and get a value like you would do in React. And you could also uh, connect a stream of changes to this local state and then uh, select some state slices from it as an observable. So this was the... The main driver behind it, how to go zoneless, and zoneless was really a, a, a nice topic for me because I knew that in the future Angular will invest uh, energy in, in getting rid of zone or at least having it optional and then bam, I, I would knew already everything. Yeah. At the moment, it's cool because they, they really start to, to, to work on that and it gives me the opportunity to have a really, really nice discussions with the team. Uh, on 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 the stuff we discovered and how it's going, so yeah, zoneless is basically the reason why I started. <laughs> so, uh, can you give us a bit more in depth insight on ZoneJS and uh, its environment in Angular? Yes, of course. Um, I said there yeah, to start. Let's let's. Let's recap that Zone.js patches all the browser APIs. I will name some of them again. Uh, set timeout, set interval, clear interval, clear timeout, request animation frame, request idle callback. Um, then we have all sorts of HTTP requests. We have button clicks, event bindings, basically on our DOM structure. We have some weird things like Canvas is also patched by, by Zone.js. And uh, what, what was for me the most funniest thing, uh, the uh, alert and console log statements were also patched by, by Zone.js. So pretty fun, pretty fun stuff in there. And I started to really discover what Zone.js does in Angular and how all that works when I started to uh, in, introduce some performance optimizations in existing applications. And I discovered that Zone basically leads to a lot of unnecessary work in the framework. So why is this the case? Um, let's take a component tree. And this component tree somewhere very down the bottom has a card and this card has a button in it. And if you can click it, uh, basically you highlight that card or you select that card. Um, to tell Angular that I clicked the button and I want to highlight this card, what, what needs to happen? So first of all, the user clicks the button. The button is basically bound to a click binding and this click binding, the vanilla uh, JavaScript click binding event listener is patched by Zone.js means uh, the, the browser native function is wrapped with a very thin layer and in that thin layer Zone.js can recognize if you interacted with that specific API. And then um, this thin layer forwards to the original browser API and the browser would do what it always does, like it uh, fires the event to the callback function and so on. Uh, so what happens then? The, you fire the, the callback function and then you do your, I don't know, state update, uh, code uh, card highlighting. 
and this is one part. So you changed the state of the card, but it is not rendered. So you don't see it. Uh, the second thing that happens directly after it is through the small sin wrapper and the ability now that zone can realize and, 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 and recognize when you interacted with this specific component, it will call a function that is called mark, uh, few dirty and mark few dirty basically sets a flag on the very specific component that says, Hey, when the next re-rendering arrives, please re-render this part of the application, this very component here. No matter if you have change detection on push set on the component or not, this very component will get re-rendered. It is marked as dirty. Um, then it calls the parents component and the parents mark dirty component uh, function. So in the parent, the same thing happens. It marks itself as dirty and then calls the parent. Marks itself as dirty, calls the parent. Marks itself until it reaches the very top of the tree of, of your component tree. And then what you did basically is you draw a path from the very component where you clicked the button, where you introduced the change to the top. And from this very top thing, you then render top down all the components that are dirty marked. So this one uh, lane uh, that goes straight to your component. And of course, this is uh, not really efficient because why should you walk through all those different components if you introduce the chains just in this very single piece of your application? Um, this is more or less a closer look on how zone would trigger um, <clears throat> change detection and uh, the state management library RX state basically helps you to um, do as much as you can with observables. Why with observables? Because observables can push a value to a specific place and you don't have to wait for a re-render, you don't have to wait for a get and this is basically also the main key to go zoneless. Well said, well said. So, woo, 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 woo. <laughs> so yeah, exactly. So, uh, next question is: Is there a benefit to use RX state next to zoneless applications? Of course, of course. So, um, you can use RX state basically as a small helper this helps you to tidy up your components uh, what we are focusing on with uh, this package rx angular is basically providing smart primitives that you can leverage to build i would call it applications of the future we really uh, introduced a lot of performance optimizations of course and this zone stuff but we also want to provide really nice uh, ways to use Uh, observables, push-based architecture in your applications and handle also really interesting things like conditional state, right? Even without reactive programming, <clears throat> you have conditional state or contextual state, I call it. Contextual state. So uh, to make it, um, let's say, more vanilla, because uh, the whole concept is also working with a promise, uh, a promise has some contextual state. A promise is either not done yet, you could have a loading spinner, a promise could give you the list or the value, the movies, 
and this is like the result state, the state where you give, get the next value from the server, uh, it could fail. So you could have an error state. And when the HTTP request is done, you can also uh, basically show the, the user that there will be no other changes to this very specific part because it is the request is completed. And those four states are basically contextual state and Rx Angular and Rx state basically are tools that help you to handle that stuff in a very easy and elegant way. So we do uh, also care a lot about developer experience and uh, ease of use. So what were, uh, what were the findings and explorations you made while researching and developing local state in Angular? Well, um, it's quite some time ago since I published the research paper. Um, basically, what I tried to do is um, not only to solve the problem of local state management, but also solve the problem of reactive local state management, because this is the most efficient way you can propagate changes to all the different uh, subscribers, right? To all the different components that want to receive changes. Um, and I did uh, some discoveries that are like framework agnostic, for example, how to tie um, subscriptions to a lifecycle hook of a component, where to basically introduce the change, where to emit the change, how you can efficiently update changes in your state and Those are like vanilla things that helped me to avoid memory leaks, to avoid boilerplate setups where you had to do a lot of um, caretaking on imperative and, and, and uh, reactive programming because obviously people, not everybody is like a fully reactive coder. It's quite, quite hard even for me to write something fully reactive. So I, I always try to make my life easier. And uh, we, we also... Uh, a general problem that we solved is how to combine imperative and reactive programming, right? So the four methods set, get, connect, and select is like the base of, of, of everything we did with, with state management. And those are just like two different principles of getting state out of some function, some logic, and setting state to a specific piece uh, of your code the reactive way and the imperative way. But in Angular, it was uh, also really interesting because um, what we did is we basically moved all the state management into the component level providers. So uh, in a small service that is only instantiated for this very component. And this is a very nice way uh, of handling it basically at the moment, one of the cleanest way that I know without using any, any decorator and uh, a really nice concept. It is also used now in uh, other libraries. For example, uh, a follow-up was a component store from NGRX team. They also now using that same approach of, of like leveraging the power of the component level providers And so and so I, a really cool, cool uh, research paper that I, I shared and that uh, basically maintained all the different uh, discoveries, like Angular specific and also just uh, in general uh, problems that we needed to solve. Uh, 
So the next question is, what is the right state? What is the right state? Exactly. <laughs> More buzzwords. Um, a state derivation uh, is... <sighs> okay. Let's go back to the movie page, right? We have the initial list of movies. Then we click on one movie. We go to the movie detail page. We have like movie, movie title, movie description. And then we have a subset, um, a movie list that only shows the movies that are similar or to the movie that you look here in detail. Uh, this is the simplest thing, and then I can make a little bit more um, more advanced uh, uh, use case. But um, derived state means that you have your let's call let's go to databases also. So in your database, you have normalized state. You have different relations between your your tables and so on. And then you select the state from there. You get a full list, a full list, and the sub list is then just a filter on that full list and you only show a subset. You derive from 100 items, only 10 items that fit. This would be a filter, a filtered uh, derivation or a derivation where we use a filter. But you can also do more stuff. For example, let's say this small list at the bottom also maintains uh, a number, like how many related movies you have. Let's say uh, this 10 movies and uh, of course you don't want to store 10 in your component as state because it is already um, I would say baked in I don't have the, the right proper wording in German I would immediately have a really cool word for it but it is uh, immanent maybe <laughs> it's already in the array so the array has a length and then you know from the array length that there are 10 items in the array so why should you maintain the item count itself if you can derive it from the array. So what you do is you make a state derivation. You derive from an array that is called list a new object that maintains uh, first of all the list plus uh, another thing that is called count, item count, and you calculate it on the fly. So when the list changes, you derive the list, you calculate the new items, and then, bam, you render it. You don't maintain that as a second, second a slice in your state. This is basically also a, a nice example for misusage of global state. A lot of stuff, also contextual state, uh, is basically often stored um, in a very bad way because you don't need to store all the data. You can derive them. You can create your selectors. You can select, derive a specific state uh, for one specific view. And this is more or less uh, the view model. You can also say model and view model. So you mentioned view versus view model. So can you discuss this in more details? Yeah. State and model is basically a synonym in my head. Sorry if I did not tell you front off. <laughs> that happens. <laughs> no, just kidding. Um, yeah, so you have the concept of model, the components model, the user model, and you maintain that, let's say, in your component, uh, you have list. 
uh, you have uh, an object that is called model that, that holds a property list. This is the model of your component, the state of your component. And this is invisible, right? It is like a database. You don't display it. It is in a variable. And then you have the template. And the template basically visualizes that model. And maybe, or as we already discussed, maybe the, the state in the view is visualized in a different way than you store it. For example, we visualize the list of movies and the number of movies. And this, this difference between the stuff that you store in the component and that you render in the view is also maintained. Of course, it is a variable. You derived it from your state. And this is what I call view model. And there is also a very nice architecture pattern that is called model view view model which is uh, present in Angular. Basically, the Angular source code is a really nice place to look up different object-oriented design patterns. Um, one of them is model view view model. And RX Angular, for example, to just make some more shameless uh, advertisement, uh, is uh, providing you a very nice and slim way of leveraging all those different concepts. You think that uh, model versus view model is uh, a good. Uh, what I could mention maybe is that sometimes you get the model from Michael. The can you repeat state because you it was some? Uh, can you hear me? I can hear you. Yeah. Okay. Can you repeat because it was some internet uh, problem? Of course. I was wanted just to to ramp up that. Um, One difference between model and view model is that the view model is another derivation from the component state that is done to make like the best uh, usage in the DOM. So the stuff that you really show in the DOM is then derived again from the component state, which is could again be different, like the, the 10 items that you render as really number and the list in addition. Okay, so in your workshop, you teach uh, OOP design patterns in combination with component state. Can you tell us um, more about it? Yes. So, basically, um, what we will learn is how to leverage... First, we will see the pain <laughs> that, that comes when you try to manage some reactive and imperative code. Then we will see the very slim wrapper called Rx state that we could leverage in its basically most, most primitive thing that you can use to mix those two concepts and keep your code clean. And based on this very simple thing, we can also rewrite it our own uh, way there in, in, in the workshop. Based on, uh, on that simple thing, we then introduce and discuss different, uh, different design patterns. Uh, maybe one pattern that is already known as a concept, as a term in the Angular community is a facet or the facet pattern. The facet pattern is an object-oriented uh, design pattern that you leverage, that you use or It is used when you have a problem of a too complex API. So a facet can help you to wrap uh, 
one or many different things uh, and unified the interaction with those different uh, things uh, inside over a simpler and more accessible, more friendly or developer-friendly API. The facet pattern is basically a very nice way to, um, to abstract, to hide the specific way of how you implement global state management. So whatever library you use as global state management library, you don't want to introduce that into your component uh, layer, right? Because then all your components rely on one specific library. So you want to wrap You want to wrap uh, uh, the specific implementation detail and provide a more accessible API that will not change even if you change the um, the implementation, the specific library that you use. Uh, so how we can implement observable inputs? It is only possible with a decorator? Um. <clears throat> Maybe before we discuss observable inputs, because they are uh, related to the yeah, you could you could basically receive a value from a facet to the to the observable input. But let me name two other patterns uh, to to give some more overview. So we have um, we have the facet pattern, and then we have uh, and I started with it because it is already known. And then we have other things like, for example, the adapter pattern or the presenter pattern, and they are also really, really useful. The facet and adapter pattern are basically more facing your global state. So you try to use a facet to wrap your global state, and you can use an adapter uh, pattern basically to um, reshape values and state for a specific place in your application. You want to write an adapter for this specific uh, plug, for this specific component. Adapter like a plug for a US plug for European, you know. Uh, and and it helps to basically um, pull together the router state, your global state, some browser Bluetooth stuff, maybe some other things that uh, are related to users, user input or, or other state from the from the browser. And you provide then a prepared object for either one or multiple different components. You adapt global layers to their to the component layer. And the second pattern, the presenter pattern, is basically here to help for the other side. The presenter pattern helps you to encapsulate the state and interaction of a view. And in the presenter pattern, or also called the model view, view model pattern, you basically maintain state in your component or your adapter or your facet. Um, that is the model. And then all the interactions are maintained in the view model. And there you have a different shape that is only for the DOM. Uh, and you can also uh, maintain all the DOM interactions, like when a button is clicked, I trigger this. And when uh, the input is typed, I trigger that. And it basically encapsulates all the interactions with the view. It is basically a facet for the view, I would say. 
<laughs> if I can now go crazy with 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 design patterns. Um, yeah, this this is like the only thing that I wanted to add to the object-oriented design pattern thing. We can go back to your uh, follow-up question: How can we implement observable input bindings? Because yes, it's true. Like uh, it would be a really nice uh, tool that we need uh, to make those implementations even smoother. And there are some um, ideas and snippets outside that use decorators for those input bindings. Um, but what we tried is uh, to don't really introduce decorators and try to find another way of leveraging that stuff. And we basically stumbled up on a pretty cool finding. Um, we were like trying to reduce change detection on input bindings. We were like, okay, what happens if we pass the observable directly? When should be there, uh, the change detection? How we transport changes? And it is a really cool thing because if you imagine, like you pass an observable to an input binding of a component and then you use the async pipe there to transform it into a single uh, uh, imperative static value added to the component and then inside of the component, you maybe want to pass it again somewhere else and mix it with, for example, the router param, uh, you would again have to turn it to an observable and then again use the async pipe in a template. So passing um, observables, observable values with the async pipe or push pipe is not really efficient. Uh, it's quite the opposite. So what we figured out is that we should pass the observable directly. So we just pass the channel, the channel that will transport all our changes to the input bindings. And by passing the channel directly, we were able to only trigger one single change detection. And then the channel itself never changes, right? So the observable itself that you passed or the promise itself that you passed will not change, just the value inside will get emitted. So we forwarded that stuff to the input binding and inside of the input binding, we just used the simplest thing we can do, RxState and its connect method. So the connect method basically helps you to uh, easily connect changes of one observable to a property of your state. It's a one-liner. And we just... Uh, take that observable, connect it to the state. And if you want to, and then all the changes will get uh, updated uh, without triggering any change detection. And if even if you want to pass it uh, further, we can just select those specific state uh, slices that we changed and pass it again as an observable down to the next component where you again could leverage the connect method. So this is, I guess, a really interesting and really performant way of um, dealing with observables and inputs. And also, if you ask me, it is essential for global state management, especially local state management, because propagating changes through the DOM tree, through the component tree, is really a, a piece in your application that you can improve dramatically if you understand the low-level details. So... How to handle error, complete, suspense, and values in the template? 
That's a good question. And this links to the, to the initial statement where I used the wording contextual state. I mentioned it already. I said like, we have contextual state with a promise. We have contextual state that is, uh, and also with observable this, that is an error, a complete, or maybe the moment where no data is yet received. A loading spinner could be shown in that way. And it is also the state in between. So imagine a search box. You start the site, uh, you basically show a loading spinner, you fetch the data from the server, and when the data arrives, boom, you render the list. And if you tap, and, and this this loading spinner shows the, I call it suspense state. It's not, not finished yet, right? Um, and you can also think about that state as a not initially one-time state, but also a state that could happen in between. If you tap again in the search box, you would fire again an HTTP request, and then again, the page, the view, the component is in a suspense mode. So we have this suspense part. The error could happen from search. Maybe the server is down or uh, you have no results and so on and so forth. So you could also leverage the contextual state of error, which happens also with a promise as well as with an observable. And then a promise as well as an observable also could complete at some point. Uh, and this basically tells the user, a completion of something tells the user that there will be no other changes in the future to that specific view. Um, so those are like the four contextual uh, states, or let's say the three. The, the fourth one is like the state itself. It's not a contextual state, but the state itself, the list and next error, uh, sorry, the list is next and error complete and suspense are like surrounding the list it is contextual to the list state mm. these are the state types and what what can we do to show them uh, if you try to show all of them in the template you bloat it up like if you look at it you have a lot of ng if hack switch whatever wrapping wrapping then you use templates that you have to flip then you use the else uh, part Mm, and it gets messy a lot and quickly. So what we did is we shipped another package that is called rx angular slash template. And this package, um, it's now in beta and we hope to ship it at the end of the year. Um, this package basically helps you to deal with all the things in a really, really nice way. It provides you the rx let directive and the rx for directive and other things that not only give you the opportunity to put an observable directly there and don't care anymore about anything else, subscription handling, rendering, whatever. It's like fully, uh, fully fledged, um, directive to honor, to optimize performance and, and experience. And you can also use template slots there that are dedicated to those contextual states, next era and complete. So it is basically a one-liner that you can use to handle all those different states in a really nice way. And believe me, if you add these nice little details to your application and you give some more feedback to the user and you show 
loading spinner here and another loading type of loading spinner there or just like more information on what is happening at the moment to your to your user they will be more happy and yeah another good reason why to uh, uh, care more about contextual state so uh, component lazy loading is quite hassle you mentioned some techniques can you elaborate Yes, at the beginning, I was like uh, ignoring when, when we talked about single page applications and that everything is there already. I said, like, let's ignore a little bit uh, lazy loading, router level lazy loading and component level lazy loading. Uh, and now we, we start with the topic. Okay, cool. So since quite a while, we can use the import statement which returns a promise and then you can import any file in angular that maintains a module and then you can take that module and do something with it for example the module maintains a component and you want to render that component uh, to do that and uh, to basically uh, implement all the details uh, all the different case edge cases that you can run into it is a lot of uh, work It's way better, of course, than uh, in the early stages of Angular, but now still not really perfect, no nice uh, one-liner that helps you to do that. And if um, if you attend the workshop, of course, ha, then you will see a very nice pattern um, where we combine a one-liner of Rx state and a one-liner of Rx template to implement component lazy loading. It's like beautiful and helps a lot to um, not only give visual feedback but of course to get down with the bundle size optimize the initial um, rendering the initial loading performance of your page by not loading everything at once we did it a lot with router uh, level lazy loading which is really easy to implement and rx angular basically is pushing to uh, also provide some solutions that we can really easily do that on the component level. Perfect. Michael, thank you so much. Um, as always, it is <laughs> great to meet you, to talk to you. It's, it's amazing. Let's talk about your next workshop, uh, Workshop Fest 2021. Workshops are held online and offline in Warsaw at the same time. So let's start on the first day. It's uh, September 14, 2021. It's RxJS Expert Skill. What will the participant learn during this training? I can only recommend our previous recording where we basically walked through the whole content in detail. So... Maybe this is not the best advertisement, but I believe if you watch, uh, sorry, listen this episode, you don't need the workshop anymore. I mean, if you remember, Darius, we were that in-depth into the topic. I really loved uh, the podcast, one of, I guess, the most favorite, nerdiest RxJS podcasts I ever did. But okay, let's recap quickly. Um, I will give some insights on what RxJS 7 brings, why it's cool, how uh, the different... Uh, operators now look like, um, especially, of course, multicasting. This is a, a very, very nice topic, uh, but also some fixes and typing changes. We will discuss error handling, and uh, as error handling is pretty 
uh, at some point, right, if you did some RxJS, you know how to use this and that catch error operator and so on. So what we will learn and we will focus on is how to handle error without interrupting the flow of your application. Yeah, so error-prone code that will happen that you cannot avoid and you still have to do that uh, in a way where your application stays fully resilient and you can really control all the errors. We can also uh, connect this knowledge then and combine it with uh, third-party libraries and how to do error logging there. Of course, uh, we will do custom operators, but believe me, they are really cool. Um, what uh, I believe, um, what is a pity is that people, when, when, when they try to teach or, or explain custom operators, they don't really show how to build custom operators, but they just show how to build a function that uh, combines existing operators. So you get an observable, you use the pipe, and then you do map, filter, and I don't know, scan, and they just wrap it in a function and say, this is a custom operator, which is true. It is a custom operator, but the custom operator is really written in, by just in a, in a very primitive way. You cannot really do a lot, but using the things that are already there. So in real life applications, often you have problems that are not implemented in RxJS already. And you have to create, I call it a real custom operator, a real custom operator that re basically creates an observable from scratch and leverages all their lifecycle hooks also subscribe, unsubscribe, and all the other moments in time that are basically not accessible if you would just do a, let's call it primitive custom operator, just a as, as you would do a custom function. Yeah? I would not call a custom operator when you just leverage existing stuff, I call it a custom function. <laughs> okay. Um, this is one thing that I'm really eager to teach because I love it. It is so nerdy and it is so helpful uh, in your real life applications that I believe many people will like it. Uh, and the next thing is testing. Mm, testing asynchronous code is not easy. Testing uh, reactive code can be done in different ways, but is also not easy. You find stuff out there, but Honestly speaking, it's not really, there is no perfect how-to guide that really tells you all the edge cases and, 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 and all the pains that you can run into. So what I will try to teaser uh, and, and discuss is how to test different things, how to leverage, um, let's say, configurable, um, config configurable code style where you can avoid or replace asynchronous parts. I will show you how to, of course, test the asynchronous parts, and we will go in-depth on marble testing, especially on the changes, the nice changes, that RxJS version 7 introduced. In the end, of course, um, multicasting, if we do an expert uh, skill workshop, multicasting should not uh, be missed out. And we basically will um, rewind, like we will really uh, look into a subject in detail because subject is the essence of multicasting. Yeah? A subject is the piece 
the only piece that you need to understand if you want to understand all the other operators. And in version six of RxJS, we had, I guess, like eight or nine different multicasting operators. Now it's getting better with, with version seven, but it's, it's a lot. It's a lot to know. There are so many different things that you need to understand. And a subject is basically the essence. So we will talk on subjects in depth. We will also see how you can misuse specific uh, multicasting techniques. So on an abstract level, what is it? How to use it? And then we will also hands-on use RxJS 7 and their latest changes so that I can show you how nice you can rewrite existing code and how clean it could look in the next version. This is basically so good overview of the of the RxJS uh, expert skill workshop. So uh, I have one more question. Uh, if I want to start to learn RxJS, why RxJS is so important in today's world of web programming? I would not say it is RxJS. I mean. The beautiful part on our, on RxJS is the pattern, the observable pattern. And RxJS is just a really nice and slim wrapper that leverages this pattern. And this pattern is not, not the operator, but the type. So this is the most essential part and super important for the nowadays and future web because they help us to write applications in a more push-based way and Uh, if we look at what is here, the browser, the browser APIs, the in user interactions, the live updates, if you edit a document or if you see that somebody else is at the moment editing a document, all those things and all those user interactions are push-based. Yeah? They are pushed to you and you cannot really know when they will happen. And what we do is we write applications in an imperative code style where, of course, the concepts are different and maybe not the best fit for a button that can be clicked at any time. So, yeah, we know the problems already, like our big applications get cluttery, and especially when you have a lot of those user interactions or a lot of push-based uh, uh, updates from the server or your infrastructure, you can see that the that the code is really nice, clean, reusable, and most importantly, stable. Stable and solid if it is written in a push-based way. So this is why uh, observables are so important, the pattern of observables, and, and also why our XJS is so important, because our XJS provides us this really nice implementation. And what I can imagine in the future, if our browser ecosystem decides finally to implement the observable pattern because there are some TC39 uh, proposals already, stage uh, three, I guess, but not really uh, advanced. Um, but if they decide to implement it, it would be amazing because then RxJS could drop the observable implementation but still provide the operators and The operators, if you understand uh, reactive programming, are also really nice because if you, if you understand the observable pattern, you did some basics on your own, you can think, um, you can think in a way that, that is tied to behaviors and not implementation details. So you can 
think uh, in filter and maps instead of like a specific list that needs to check if a specific ID is 10 and then use it and not so like imperative versus uh, reactive. And I lost it. No, Darius, I lost it. Come on, what did I say? Okay, so let's... Um... Imperative, reactive coding, blah, blah. <laughs> How can I... Why it is important? And it is important because... A lot of a lot of reactive part in the browser, a lot of other stuff. Tralala. Let's skip to the next question. <laughs> I would say we keep it in because it's funny for the audience to see me, hear me messing up. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's what that's what great answer. That's what great answer, and I'm really interested in in uh, in this because, as you said, is the stable code is um maintain uh, is uh, like a very clear to read and uh, yeah so it's really it's really to good to easy to change and easy to extend right so yeah. if you have a product uh, you don't write the code once and then that's it you constantly improve it change it adapt it add some more stuff and it really helps to do that really quickly reliable and testable for uh, of course yeah so let's switch to the second day. It is uh, September 15, uh, and it is advanced reactive UI patterns. So what will the participant learn during this training? Basically, a lot of stuff that we discussed today, we discussed already model view model, local state, global state, the object-oriented design patterns, observable input bindings. We will also see how to do observable host bindings, how we can manage async data streams, flattening operators. Uh, yeah, we discussed already uh, lazy loading of components, also really nice thing, and reusable uh, UX patterns to basically avoid flickering for image uh, preloading. Uh, a lot of different things, but most of that stuff we already discussed in the today's session. Perfect. And the last two days is uh, September 16 to 17, uh, performance at scale. So what will the participant learn during this training? I really, really, really look forward to this one. It is brand new. Um, it's fully focusing on performance. Um, I believe, I, I fully believe that performance is the key to have a successful business in the future because our devices, uh, our, our infrastructure, everything is getting more and more overloaded. We try to be more economic with all the stuff we do. And we also have to provide a good and quick experience to all our users. Every single millisecond or let's say 10 milliseconds make a difference and people are measuring that stuff that that stuff like since years right we have huge studies on how 25 artificial milliseconds of uh, of a delayed rendering in amazon costed millions and how uh, this and that uh, other websites get more traffic or how pinterest got more swipes on the desktop version, then on the mobile version, just because they fixed some performance 
bottlenecks. And this is really amazing and really shows us how closely connected the success of a business and performance is. It is also basically my the main focus topic in the last three years, uh, especially in the last two years where I started with RX Angular uh, and all the other vanilla uh, performance audits that I did for other companies. So what we will learn there is uh, really hands-on expert knowledge on uh, performance engineering. We will start with the dev tools. I will, I will use the Chrome dev tools because I know them very well. And uh, the, the documentation is also good. And also there are a lot of additional tools that I want to demonstrate in combination with the Chrome dev tools. So we will start by understanding how the different phases of a performance can be named, for example, bootstrap and runtime performance. We will see which tools uh, the Chrome Dev Tools provide to basically help us to analyze different parts, different areas of these um, of these problems. For example, we will have a look in the network tab. We will do really network analysis. We will download the HAR, the HAR file, this is the stuff that you get when you do a network analysis in the Chrome tab and put it in other, other tools that help us to dig even more deeper in those HTTP uh, request things. Um, we will learn also how to basically avoid blocking UIs. Blocking UIs are really one of the main things that uh, also Lighthouse uh, are considered as very, very bad. And to improve that, we will learn how to read flame charts. So we will have a really, really detailed look in uh, the Chrome DevTools performance tab, the flame charts tab, and understand how to read that. We will do some code examples that I will run to demonstrate how the flame charts look when we introduce synchronous, uh, asynchronous code, different files, uh, and of course, different scheduling techniques, all of them uh, look different in the in the flame charts. And if you understand how to read that, you can basically improve any application. I have a couple of uh, sparring partners and, and also other people, uh, bigger companies that use RX Angular. And we also do some, some constant perf, perf measurements and support for them. And they are always surprised when I open up their website. They tell me, yeah, can you have a look at that website? It is slow. And I open it up and two, three minutes later, I tell them which library and which part of their code base is slow. They are impressed. They're like, how can you do that? You're a wizard. And I was like, no, I just know how to read the flames. And this is what we will learn. This is, I believe, the biggest superpower you can have as uh, a person that is interested in performance understanding flame charts and reading them. Reading them not in like details, but looking at them as patterns that you can generalize and rediscover in pretty much any framework and any stack. So this is the cool part and it is not really hard. If you know how, it's super easy. And this is one of the interesting parts that we will learn in the workshop. Um, we will basically learn how to do a small performance audit and leveraging different tools. Michael, thank you. Thank you so much for today's podcast. It is always an honor to meet you. 
If you haven't joined Workshop Fest 2021 yet, this is the moment. It will be four amazing days that will change your life forever. You will, ja- you will gain practical knowledge that will lift your career to the top. This is the only chance to spend four days with Michael Hladki, one of the best trainers in the world. So you can join online, you can join stationary in Warsaw, you decide about your future. So see you at the workshop. Thank you, thank you so much.